I'm Ron Edwards, host of the Edwards Notebook, and you're listening to Tim Tap and Tap Into the Truth. broadcast of Tap Into the Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, with all the usual caveats, of course. With you, as always, I am your ever-so-humble and, you know, mostly peaceful host, Tim Tap, coming to you from historic, lovely, beautiful Roan County, Tennessee. Now, uh, got to tell you, as always, I'm very, very Honored and thrilled in a manner that I can't even begin to express with words that you've chosen to listen to this broadcast. So thank you so very much for being here. Most of you are listening to the podcast form of the show. In fact, recent uptick over at Spotify tells me that maybe some of you guys were actually listening to uh, my recommendation to go over there. And I'm still at this very moment asking you to do that go over to spotify so 
some support for Joe Rogan, and then show some support for other conservative podcasts that happen to be over there as well, uh, just by uh, clicking the follow button and you know go ahead and give us some reviews, uh, hopefully positive ones. Uh, uh, you know the the uh, the whole ball of wax. Send a message to the bigwigs at Spotify that they need to remember that the platform is there and it should be there for everyone that allows them to do the most business that they can do. It lets them make more money. And it's a good indicator that at least a majority of people out there still believe in the fundamental notion of freedom of expression. Uh, So keep it up. Keep up the good work. Keep going over there. Uh, Again, if they end up completely dropping the ball like I'm afraid they're probably going to here in a little bit, uh, then you can go back and just completely delete your account and sign up for Pandora. I just <laughs> whatever you need to do. But uh, anyway, uh, there's lots of places you can listen to podcasts uh, besides there. I do have an interesting conversation that I want to play in the uh, first hour of the show. I had a, a very good conversation, actually, with a lady who is so very passionate about her job. Uh, Miss Tracy Fenton, the, the founder and CEO of Blue World, or World Blue, uh, B-L-U, it's World Blue, I'm sorry, I'm getting uh, in too big of a hurry. We're going to play that conversation that I had with her yesterday. Uh, for those of you that are listening to the rebroadcast of the uh, show on Terrestrial Radio, uh, time of this broadcast, just so that you know, it's February 8th, 2022, and it's just around 7 p.m. Eastern. You, of course, can you can adjust to your time zone accordingly. So I'm going to play for you that uh, conversation that I had yesterday with uh, Miss Fenton. Uh, I think you will find it interesting, or at least I hope you do. And if not, hey, just let me know, and uh, we'll find other guests to talk to. Uh, but I, I suspect you will. I, it was a nice conversation, and I just loved the passion that she has. Anyway, we'll talk about that uh, here in just a little bit. In the meanwhile, uh, a few quick hits that I want to kind of touch on before we move forward. Uh, We got uh, Jan Saki still blaming the meat companies for skyrocketing grocery bills. Uh, Isn't it lovely? The White House Press Secretary Jan Saki doubled down on the claim that soaring meat prices are caused by profiteering from the meat companies. As of December 2021... Consumer prices were rising at a 7% pace, leading to higher grocery prices and tighter budgets for many American families. But rather than pointing to federal spending or loose monetary policy, well, the Democratic officials, particularly in the uh, Operation P-Pads and Knee-Pads, that's the Biden-Harris administration, in case you were wondering, uh, they want to place all the blame on the supermarkets and the meat companies. You know, they're just trying to earn higher profits. How dare they? Actually, they're just trying to cover the difference in the cost that they're spending. Their monetary policy and their energy independence policy is what has us in this situation. That, along with the uh, the effort to continue to try and pay people to stay home, the effort to reduce the number of unemployed uh, through making people just no longer seek jobs anymore instead of them actually getting back to work, Uh, those policies, they've led to actual inflation. 
apparently long-term inflation, far more long-term than they're willing to admit, and we're paying a heavy price. But, you know, again, uh, Miss Saki, she is stuck in a job where she has to repeat the talking points. She is actually supposed to be the ringleader for the talking points, and this is one of those talking points, and they're going to continue to lie to you, the American public, because they can, and because if they admit to their own shortcomings, then uh, you got no reason to support them in the future, do you? All right, another quick hit story. Uh, Peloton, uh, you know, the exercise uh, equipment folks that do the virtual classes, well, they fired their CEO and then nearly 3,000 other employees after speculation about a big tech buyout uh, continues to grow. Uh, the Peloton Interactive Company, well, it's kind of falling to pieces at the moment. Uh, they're replacing their CEO as the speculation about a merger continues to grow, although the speculation continues. There doesn't seem to be uh, a whole lot of consensus about who the merger might be with, and usually that's a pretty good indicator at this far into the game that this is just wishful thinking on somebody's part. But, uh, you know, we'll see. Sometimes they do play it really close to the vest, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Now, the company, of course, as I mentioned, they manufacture stationary exercise bikes uh, through which users can complete virtual fitness classes. Uh, of course, uh, they've kind of they've been through this remarkable slowdown in demand since the COVID-19 lockdowns that originally presented new growth opportunities. And in fact, lots of companies that do something focused on things you can do at home, especially ways to stay active that you can do at home and allows you to have interaction outside of the house. Companies that engaged in those type of activities typically did pretty well, not so much for Peloton. Uh, the co-founder, uh, John Foley, he's going to end his decade-long tenure as CEO. Instead, he's going to be assuming the new role of executive chairman, and he's going to be replaced by former Spotify CFO Barry McCarthy. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, a lot of this still falls on the idea of the falling stock price as Peloton stock started this year at roughly $35, and by the end of January alone, the price had declined to 24 Now, that's a significant drop in what was considered to be a relatively solid and stable company going into that uh, going into that stage. However, it is important to remember, and I will remind everyone, that uh, stock prices have been very volatile as of late. Now, a correction is overdue, quite honestly. They kept going up and up and up regardless of what the reality in the business world was under Trump. So we were due a correction. Uh, and then the complete and total uncertainty that we get from the uh, barely there Beijing Biden administration, uh, it's cause for alarm. A lot of people are very, very concerned about what their future holds. Uh, another headline, I'm just going to read you the headline. Alec Baldwin says it's strange uh, being back on the set after this horrible thing happened. Uh, <laughs> he's, of course, back on the rust set where he shot and killed somebody. Uh, hey, 
but uh, you know what are you going to do? Uh, may try to hit on this story a little bit more later. May just kind of skip it and pick it up uh, on another broadcast. But uh, big headline here: the Chinese-owned TikTok uh, video app. Well, they share data with more third parties than any other social media platform. Ooh, big surprise. And uh, officially announcing out there right now, anti-Semitic crimes spiked nearly 300% in New York City last month uh, since last year. Nearly 300%. Now, this was already a problem. In fact, if you want to go into the archives, you can find a couple of shows where I've had rabbis on the show, and we were talking about uh, things that they were doing and the discussion point of the rise in anti-Semitic behavior, particularly in New York, and how it was being ignored by the mainstream legacy media. We talked about that then. And I would highly recommend you go back into those archives and check it out if, if you want to want to have some exposure there. In the meanwhile, let's go ahead and play that conversation with Tracy Fenton. And uh, on the other side, we'll get into some main topics. Um, stay where you're at. Here we go. Miss Tracy Felton. Fenton. 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 Let me enunciate. Miss Tracy Fenton. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much for staying with us through that very brief break. And uh, I have a distinct pleasure and honor today as we have a brand new guest to the show. Uh, this is a lady who has been changing the corporate structure uh, around the world for quite a while. And uh, I could go through her resume, which is very, very impressive. But the bottom line is it's really more about who she is. Now, she is a CEO herself. She's pulled together a team where they go about doing corporate leadership development, and uh, they have a very unique uh, approach, we'll say. Uh, certainly uh, a bit of a rarity in the corporate world these days. It certainly has set herself apart, and uh, in the process of doing that, she has managed to well, she's managed to defend freedom and liberty in a way that most people probably wouldn't expect. Uh, she is a uh, author as well, and we're going to talk about her uh, latest book. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, please welcome to the show Miss Tracy Fenton. Uh, Tracy, thank you so much for coming on with me, and I, I want to relate to the listeners uh, how kind and patient you have been with me, because we were actually scheduled to get together last week, and I had an utter disaster right before we went on uh, air, and uh, you were very, very kind, uh, and uh, I certainly appreciate your willingness to come back. And so thank you very much for that. And uh, with all this other uh, aside, how are you this evening? Oh, thanks for having me, Tim. I'm so delighted to be on the show and talk about this very important topic of bringing freedom and democracy into our workplaces and using it to change our world. All right. Well, uh, you, uh, of course... Uh, you've been doing this for a while. You have a freedom-centered organization. Uh, you've been working with uh, uh, your company's called World Blue, and mm -hmm. you uh, you do just this really amazing thing to me. I I'm always interested with people who work in the area of leadership development to begin with, uh, but certainly uh, what you do is a little different. But before we dive into the the book, which is a fantastic read. I haven't been able to get through all of it just yet, 
but I absolutely love what I have read so far, and you're laying out a good blueprint for the basic premise. Uh, for those of the listeners that are out there, I have not yet mentioned the book, so let me go ahead and throw that out there. Uh, it's called Freedom at Work, The Leadership Strategy for Transforming Your Life, Your Organization, and Our World. Now, we'll swing to that in a little bit, but Tracy, before we get anywhere else, I really would like to know exactly how do you see your job description and how did you get into this line of work? Well, I, I'm the founder and CEO of world blue, like you said, and I founded world blue back in 1997. So we are just about to celebrate next week, our 25th anniversary. And what my team and I have been doing for the last 25 years is teaching leaders how to lead themselves their teams, and their organizations on the principles of freedom and democracy rather than fear and control. And we've had the great privilege of working with companies from small all the way up to Fortune 500 companies in over 100 countries worldwide with top brands that you've heard of, such as WD-40, Zappos, excuse me, DaVita, Great Harvest Bread Company, Mind Valley, Widen, and hundreds more that you've never heard of, small businesses as well. And what got me into this, Tim, was from a very young age, I knew that my purpose in life was to help people realize their fullest potential. I just always knew that that's what I was here to do. And I had had a wonderful father who's since passed, but he was a teacher. Both my parents were teachers. And then my dad, when I was about 12 years old, went into insurance and financial planning and we used to, when he would drive me to my extracurricular activities, he'd be listening to Zig Ziglar tapes and, you know, Brian Tracy and all the Nightingale Conant stuff for those of your listeners who know uh, the leadership classics. And I listened to those with him. And I just always knew that was going to be my path, that my path was about leadership and helping people unlock their greatness. And it all kind of came together in a really unique way. My senior year of college, I was asked by the president of my college. I went to Principia College in Illinois for my undergrad. And I was asked by the president of our college to head up our student affairs conference. And this was a big honor because we're the oldest student affairs conference um, in the country. And I said, sure. And so got together the student team and I said, all right, gang, let's do something for our topic that's going to be really consciousness raising and outside the box and forward thinking. And we went off on summer vacation before my senior year and everyone was going to took themselves very seriously. And, you know, we went and did research and all that. And we came back and the student team presented to me. I remember in the, in the president's boardroom, it was all very formal. And they said, Tracy, we think the topic of our conference should be drumroll democracy. And my thinking at that time, Tim, was not very enlightened. I kind of thought democracy was old guys in politics in Washington, D.C. and voting. And I didn't think that either of those things seemed very consciousness raising or outside the box or forward thinking. Now, please know I love you know, guys, guys, we appreciate all the work you do. But, you know, it's those stereotypes, right, of what democracy is. And right. as I started talking with the student team, they said, no, look, like democracy isn't just politics. It's a leadership style. And it's a style that can apply to 
business. It can apply to government. It can apply to education. You know, it can apply to all these different areas of our lives. And as I started to connect the dots, I realized, well, wait a second. My purpose in life is helping people realize their greatness, realize their fullest potential. You can't do that in an environment of fear and control. You can only do that in an environment of freedom and possibility. And democracy is that framework that gets us to freedom. And so I fell in love, truly fell in love with democracy. I ended up doing my undergraduate and later my graduate work at American University, researching and really understanding what are the principles that create a democratic system. Founded World Blue and build a global company. And here we are 25 years later, and my book, Freedom at Work, tells these stories of all of these incredible companies that we've worked with, but have also earned our highest uh, certification, um, our highest award out there, which is called uh, a World Blue Freedom-Centered Organization. So the book chronicles all these great, great and inspiring stories. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it's, it's a good thing to know what your passion is that early. Uh, not a lot of people come to that realization uh, early enough to, to take full advantage. It sounds like uh, sounds like you had some really good influence and uh, some really good uh, mentorships along the way to get you to that point uh, based on what you've said. But, uh, you know, what's surprising to me is now within the realm of uh, leadership development, there is uh, a... A, a prevailing idea, a notion that there should be some level of fear. Uh, leaders should be constantly concerned about uh, what happens if you fail to meet uh, certain criteria. We've seen a lot of racial essentialism work its way into uh, the idea of uh, the, the, the concept of being sensitive. You know the the racial sensitivities, mm. and mm-hmm. and it's a push that's almost so far that it's become uh, the antithesis of freedom at work, which is exactly where you're taking your direction. So before we get more specifically about the book, I, I am curious: Have you faced any type of pushback from other professionals that are in leadership development that that are looking for that more, uh, if you'll forgive the term, woke uh, approach to leadership development? No, no, no one has really come and pushed back on us um, with that because when you look at uh, what I ended up in my research identifying is that there are 10 principles that create a democratic system. And I specifically use the words principles rather than values because principles are inviolate and unchanging. Values are what guide behavior. Principles are what create structure. So we have found there's 10 principles that create a democratic system system. And as I think about um, wokeism, which I'm not like an expert in talking about this, but because we really try to stay just really locked into the 10 principles. Right. But, you know, one of the 10 principles is fairness and dignity, you know, treating everyone fairly. Fairness doesn't mean sameness, right? But treating everyone with fairness and everyone with a sense of dignity. So the whole premise of democracy is that everyone has worth but everyone has inherent value. And that's really the angle that we come at things at with World Blue. It's recognizing that everyone has inherent worth, value, and dignity, and everyone deserves to be treated fairly. 
Um, another one of the principles of democracy that's so vitally important and under attack right now with wokeism is the balance of the individual and the collective. So sometimes we go way too far on the collective and we're forgetting that we have to also respect and value the individual and each individual's rights and expression and voice. And we're seeing so much of that individuality, I think, being stripped away in corporate America these days, well, all over the world, in fact, and everyone's being asked to conform, you know, to one collective standard. And that's just not, in my understanding, um, you know, breeding, <laughs> you know, in, in, in alignment with democracy and freedom. So those two principles, um, as well as many others, are what guide us as we go through this. And what's great with World Blue, you know, we're called World Blue. Blue is universally recognized as the color of freedom. We're obviously not a political organization. We're here teaching a leadership style. And we attract, we, you know, we have members from 35 countries worldwide. We attract people from all across the political spectrum, but who believe in freedom and democracy and want to build their companies on these principles and want to lead their companies on these principles. And that's what we're here to support. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, uh, that's great. First of all, I'm glad to hear that nobody has taken offense because it does seem like, at least here in the United States, you being a worldwide company, uh, maybe you don't see it as much outside. But uh, obviously here, people tend to be easily offended if you just use the wrong word. And uh, I, I would hate to think that because from the sounds of it, you are taking that uh, very inclusive approach. Uh, all you have to do is like freedom and you should be in line with these orders. And yeah, I greatly appreciate the ideology of, of standing firm on principles as opposed to uh, trying to establish what values are because values are a very personal thing too. And, and three people can share basically the same values but still have a major uh, difference when it comes to one aspect of that value. And then you're just finding ways to divide. Whereas with the principles, it's hard to go wrong. So uh, a fantastic approach. And I'm, like mm -hmm. I said, I'm very – Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if, if, if you don't mind, if I just add one more thought on what you're saying, because it's very important to bring this out, is, you know, at the core of wokeism um, and some of these other things is really a fear-driven approach. Mm -hmm. And when you unpack it, you can see that fear. And in my book, I teach us, I teach people really how to recognize how much fear controls and the many, many masks that fear wears. And so we're here to elevate that conversation out of the muck of fear, you know, and really make sure that we're coming at our problems with just a higher and more elevated way of approaching things. And we really feel that freedom is a common ground that everyone can stand on. I think freedom's our sacred right and, and freedom is a seed that's planted in each one of us. Very well said. I, I certainly can't agree with you more. Uh, now, uh, focusing on the book just a little bit, uh, first of all, Freedom at Work, great title, should raise some eyebrows and bring some folks interested into picking it up. Uh, two questions uh, evolve before we talk about details within. Uh, first of all, uh, after 25 years in the business, what made you feel like now was the time to to have this book out there? And then the other question is, uh, do you feel like maybe uh, putting all your uh, 
success stories in here. Does this work to reveal some of your secrets so that maybe somebody doesn't become a client? Or by sharing this little bit of the strategy and talking about how successful you are, will this drive people to uh, to your organization? Uh, which one do you feel? Well, our end goal is we just want to see more freedom-centered leadership and freedom-centered companies worldwide. And however we get there, I'm cool with it. You know, we're here to support. I wrote the book to be a leadership handbook. And so to part one of your question, um, I knew literally from day one when I started World Blue at 21 years old, I founded it technically my senior year of college. After I started the conference, I was like, I'm going to build a business around this. Let's do this. Um, I knew from day one Uh, I'm a really spiritual person, and I just heard God tell me, you're going to write a book. And because I had that vision from day one, Tim, everything we've done, you know, we've documented, we've researched, we've taken copious notes, um, figuring out the Freedom at Work model. I mean, I didn't start there, right? It takes time to hammer this stuff out, to, to try new ideas, to see what works, to see what doesn't work. And I'm really proud of where we're at right now. I did not want to write this book until I knew that we had a model that worked, that was um, based not on theory, but on practice, and that could be implemented in any size organization, in any industry, literally around the world. And the reason it works is because it's a principle-based approach. It's not a practice-based approach. We're not prescriptive saying you have to do x y and z in order to you know therefore be a democratic organization we teach the principles and then we teach companies how to adapt those principles to their size scope geography you know goals of what they're trying to achieve so i'm really proud of the book because as you maybe have seen um i picked out 50 of the hundreds of worldly certified freedom center companies around the world and then of the literally thousands of best practices that we have and have helped develop with these companies worldwide, I picked the top 100, curated the top 100 that I saw would work very well in solving common uh, business problems in an uncommon way with a fresh and inspirational perspective that doesn't create more command and control hierarchy that slows down an organization, but does it more democratically so that the company can be agile, faster, and create a culture that everyone loves. So I'm super excited about how the book came out. I'm really proud of it. I can't wait for people to just get into it and start learning. I wanted to write a page turner. It's full of inspirational stories. Um, the early feedback I've gotten been, been endorsed by great thinkers like Dan Pink and Gary Ridge, Ken Theory, and others. Everyone just absolutely loves the book, and I just can't wait to share it when it comes out March 1st. Well, you know, what I absolutely enjoy as far as what I've gotten into is that it really does uh, try to move you from a leadership perspective to the to a more organic and a more real uh, conversation uh, with uh, everyone in the organization. You, uh, a lot of uh, leadership uh, folks, they, they try to focus on the fact that you want to have a corporate culture where you're going to be able to get input from the people that are on the front lines of doing whatever it is you do. You want the janitor to be able to have input. You want the uh, the tech uh, that's over here operating the equipment to be able to have input. And that is still, despite that effort, one of the hardest things to 
to just create in, in a natural and a real way. But the focus here is creating the, the mindset that allows for the leadership to actually – uh, to get into that uh, that level so that they can create that give and take, which, as you said, not just makes a company more agile, but it also gives some real impact uh, to the leadership, too. The, the most important thing for a true leader to learn is that they still need to constantly be learning, I think. Well, that's exactly it. You know, Freedom at Work is based on three pillars. It's based on having a freedom-centered mindset, learning how to lead in a freedom-centered way, and then the freedom-centered design of the systems and processes of an organization. So I'm not talking about sort of an anarchy, laissez-faire, inmates running the asylum. I'm not talking about democracy. Some people think democracy in the workplace, I rule, that means you don't have a CEO and everyone's going to vote on everything. And none of that is true. You know, democracy is a system and it's a leadership style. And like you said, Democracy means power to the people. It's having the voice. It's having the input. And it's designing those systems and processes that make all of that function and flow in a really harmonious way. And we're at the point where we've really figured this out, Tim, and we've figured out how to get companies there in a way that's faster, easier, and quite frankly, more fun. And we do that through our courses and our coaching and everything we have to offer. And I really feel like companies (laughs) – They've got, they've got to, uh, they've got to get on board with this. I mean, the Great Resignation is an, is a red flag to let companies know people are over being treated like cogs in the machine. They're tired of not feeling a sense of meaning and purpose in their jobs and in their work, and they want to be a part of something bigger than themselves that values them as human beings. And that's exactly what we teach companies how to do in Freedom at Work and here at World Blue. So you can tell I'm really passionate about it. Yeah, absolutely. And for somebody that's been doing it for 25 years, that passion to still be there, that says a lot too. Uh, I'm very impressed. Uh, And uh, uh, like I said, I haven't been able to get through the entire book yet. Uh, I've been enjoying every bit of it though. And uh, like you said, it's very inspirational, some of the stories, but I really like the organic flow. But you know what, Tracy? Unfortunately, we're quickly running out of time. And uh, I do feel uh, rather shortchanged that we haven't been able to get a little deeper into it (laughs) because I've enjoyed the conversation. And I often say good conversations uh, tend to go by so very fast. Uh, Before we uh, say our goodbyes for today, though, please, I would love for you to let all the listeners know where they can find all your work, share any websites you'd like to. And if you're inviting people to follow you on social media, feel free to share that as well. Just whatever you want the folks to know so they can come find you in World Blue. Absolutely. Well, my book is called Freedom at Work. Simple title you can remember. You can get on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you like to order books. We've got it. Our website is World Blue. It's World and then Blue, B-L-U, no E on Blue. We have a really great website. You can come to our website, and we are a membership model, so companies and individuals can apply to join. We have paid membership levels, but we even have a free membership level if you just want to dip your, your toes in the water and check us out. And you can follow me, Tracy Fenton. That's Tracy with an I, Fenton, on LinkedIn. If you want to send me a note on LinkedIn and let me know you heard me on the show, I would love to hear from you. And last, if you pick up a copy of the book before March 1st, you are welcome to join us at our Freedom at Work Book Summit that we're doing on Thursday, February 24th. 
from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern. We're going to have 15 of the CEOs featured in the book come on and share their inspirational stories. I'll be hosting it. I'll be talking more about the, the creation of the book and fun behind-the-scenes stories about the book. And you can find all of this on our website. Our ticket to admission is a copy of the book. Pick up a copy or two or three or four and join us at the summit. You're going to have so much fun. Again, that's worldly.com. You can find me there. All right. And once again, uh, thank you so very much for spending part of your evening with us tonight. Uh, I greatly appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I would very much like to get back together with you again some point uh, in the, the near future, uh, especially after the full release. And uh, you've had a chance to see how successful uh, everything is going, because I would love to spend some time talking about some of the uh, the individual stories that you've shared, because I think the listeners could find a, a good amount of value to it but hopefully they'll all go pick up a copy and they won't need for us to talk about it just to just to hear your passion about uh, how things went because i'm digging that too uh, passion is infectious and we could sure use a whole lot more of that oh i'd love to come back to him anytime let's do it all right thank you tracy and uh you have a great rest of your evening and i look forward to our uh, next chance to get together thanks so much for having me tim thank you all right, so that was my conversation with Tracy Fenton, and uh, I do hope you'll actually uh, follow up with a request. If you, you hear this, slide on over to LinkedIn and uh, go ahead and drop her a note and let her know that you heard her here on the show. Uh, I, she's just trying to gauge which programs are worth her time, and uh, hopefully this one will uh, fall into uh, making the cut, if you will. Let's go ahead and take that mid-hour break that I am a few minutes late on. And, uh, you know, again, don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. You're listening to Tap Into The Truth. My name's Joe Biden. I keep forgetting I'm president. Recently, the Michigan Democrat Party elites ignited a massive response from parents who were already very unhappy with the mental damage to students via socialist indoctrination. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, brought to you by Constitutional Grounds Coffee. Michigan Democrats responded to parents in a written comment stating, quote, not sure where parents should control what is taught in schools because they are our kids is originating, but parents do have the option to choose to send their kids to a hand-selected private school at their own expense if this is what they desire. The snarky leftist drivel continued. The purpose of a public education in a public school is not to teach kids only what parents want them to be taught. It is to teach them what society needs them to know. The client of the public school is not the parent, but rather the entire community, the public. That statement echoed a sentiment expressed by failed Virginia gubernatorial candidate Terry McAuliffe during a debate last October. 
It is time we, the people, soon show the elitist Democrats once and for all that they are non-essential in government and education. I'm Ron Edwards. For Constitutional Grounds Coffee, go to theronedwards.com. Ron Edwards, the new voice of America. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. You're listening to Tap Into the Truth. My name's Joe Biden. I keep forgetting I'm president. I keep forgetting I'm president. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. gentlemen thank you so very much for staying with me through that very brief break i hope that you enjoyed the conversation with tracy fitton and i hope that you will go out and get a uh, copy of the new book and uh, go over to linkedin and let her know that you heard her right here on this broadcast that's right let her know you heard her on tap into the truth all right with that having been said guess what if you're going to fully enjoy the blessings of individual liberty that means you have to take individual responsibility and a big part of that means self-reliance and nobody's been helping you to be self-reliant longer than the fine folks over at my patriot supply Uh, go down into the show description uh, copy the entire link as you see there beside my patriot supply Paste that link into your web browser and go visit. By using that link, they know that I sent you. And if you're too busy right now or if you're listening to terrestrial radio so that it doesn't make sense for you to uh, to try to hit the link, well, then uh, just visit me a little later over at tapintothetruth.com. That's T-A-P-P into the truth.com. And from there, well, you can uh, just scroll down the homepage and uh, click on a banner, and that will take you where you need to go. All right, with that being said, let's uh, go ahead and sneak this story in before I run out of time for this first hour. Um, So as soon as March, the Biden administration could release its brand-new strategy in an effort to regulate Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, which the administration reportedly claims may be a national security issue. At least that's going to be their excuse to jump in. Now, you and I both already know that the real trouble, the real problem that they have with cryptocurrencies is they can't control them. And then, therefore, they can't control us. If we take our value and put it into a form that they can't control, then that makes it difficult for them to demand we give them our resources, our fruits of our labor, you know, all all those things that, for whatever reason, these leftists seem to want. Now, according to Bloomberg... 
the Biden administration is preparing to release an initial government-wide strategy for digital assets as soon as next month and task federal agencies with assessing the risk and opportunities that they pose. Meaning a lot of these cryptos, they're just, they're just going to deem them as being uh, too volatile, which actually is part of what allows them to, to offer some value and some opportunities. Buy really, really low. If you had bought Bitcoin when it first came out and sold your Bitcoin just this last couple of months back when it was at record highs, then you have done extremely well for yourself. That's the opportunity. And part of that opportunity is a certain level of sta static value, a static value. Because when it comes to Bitcoin, not so much with other cryptos, but with Bitcoin specifically, there are still only so many Bitcoins that are ever going to exist. So as more people want them, the more the value of each individual coin is going to be. That's part of how this plays out. But because there aren't regulations, well, it's hard for government, especially Democrat government, to, to just deal with it, to accept it. They can't handle it. Now, uh, Bloomberg reported the following as well, saying, quote, uh, the late stage draft of the executive order details economic, regulatory, and national security challenge posed by cryptocurrencies, uh, according to people uh, who asked not to be named discussing the internal deliberations. The administration is also expected to weigh in on the possibility of the U.S. issuing a government-backed coin known as the Central Bank Digital Currency, uh, CBDC. Uh, the people familiar with the talks, uh, they've made these statements clear. But according to one of the people, the administration is likely to hold off on taking a firm position as the Federal Reserve is still considering the issue. Now, according to uh, uh, an article written up over at The Blaze, quote, the recently passed bipartisan infrastructure deal requires cryptocurrency brokers, uh, Coinbase, uh, Krypton.com, Gemini, etc., uh, to disclose the names and addresses of their customers in order to coerce compliance with tax laws. And the bipartisan infrastructure deal also required cryptocurrency brokers to provide the IRS and each customer with a Form 1099-B detailing exchanges, withdrawals, and holdings. Now, again, this is just so they can tax us. Tax us on dollars that have already been taxed. But the fact that they're getting ready to make this move, it's, it's not surprising. You know, we've been, we've been hearing the whispers for a while now. We've talked about it here, and I'm sure you've heard other commentators talk about it, not just conservative commentators either. Now here, of course, this is a political show typically, and so I'm going to be spouting off all kinds of political stuff. Not all of my guests are political, though. A uh, good example was uh, Miss Tracy Finn, who was on just a little while ago. So very non-political. In fact, she's about as legitimately inclusive, 
not inclusive as the left means it, but legitimately inclusive as anybody uh, that that you're likely to meet, period. But inclusivity is not a high trait that we're seeing in American politics these days. I mean, the word gets bantered about as if it has some actual meaning, uh, which, of course, words typically do have meanings. It's just that the left's constantly trying to change those meanings. Cryptocurrency is a rare opportunity for some, and it's a, a place where a place where you can put your your wealth, your your things of value. You can you can hold it. It's gonna hold that value better than a lot of other forms of wealth storage. You know, like the U.S. dollar, for example. And don't get me wrong, right now the U.S. dollar is still the world currency. The problem is a few more years under Joe Biden and the current administration, uh, that may not be the case. You do have China that is actively looking to try and replace the U.S. dollar. You have this major Sorry, excuse me, I had to hit the button for how to cough. (laughs) Not cool. Anyway, you have this major competitor on the world stage, China, and they want to replace the U.S. dollar as the the common world currency. They want to see the U.S. economy crushed, destroyed. And unfortunately, we have an administration that doesn't seem to understand economics very well, so they're helping them out. Well, you've seen nothing but inflationary uh, policies from from day one, literally day one, literally within the first couple of hours when uh, barely there, Beijing Biden sat down at his desk and started signing off on all these various executive orders. They were almost all detrimental to the U.S. economy, therefore detrimental to the average American family. And uh, we should be concerned about this, so... uh, it's only, it's only natural that these folks want to reach out and put an end to our ability to freely trade with one another and cut them out. They don't get to be the middleman when it comes to crypto. Now, there are so many different cryptocurrencies out there. It is difficult at best to make sense of it all. Even if you've been in the game for a while, you you get a feel for what the more stable coins are and where you can actually put some value at. If you're new to the game, it can be a little overwhelming. And that's why I actually tend to to be very supportive of Coinbase. In fact, I'm supportive of Coinbase for multiple reasons. First of all, I am a customer, full disclosure. Uh, I have bought... Uh, various cryptos, a very limited number of cryptos, but uh, various cryptos on Coinbase. Bitcoin and Ethereum among them. A few others that also uh, uh, they uh, offer what basically amounts to interest on uh, your holdings there. It's a, uh, it's a situation where you uh, get uh, extra coinage for staking what you're currently holding. So it's essentially interest. I have on different occasions 
asked you to follow uh, a link in the show description to go to crypto so that they know that I'm the one that sent you to go over to Coinbase. So I have an affiliate level, but not truly affiliate. I actually have a personal uh, little connection there where if you follow that link and then you do $100 worth of business over there, you'll get $10 worth of Bitcoin for free, and so will I. And if enough of you go do that, then I'll be doing okay. And in fact, since I mentioned it, I'll go ahead and put that in the show description again today as well. But the point of the matter is, it's a good opportunity to cut the middleman out of the equation. Now, there is some legitimate concern, though, in regards to where do some of these transactions end up going? Can terrorists, international terrorists, use cryptocurrencies to transfer monies back and forth? Well, technically, yes, yes, they can. But I hate to tell you guys, there is not any other form of currency that they still can't use. Now, you've done a lot of things to make it harder, but the fact that there may be a criminal utilizing a form of currency, it doesn't seem like a good enough reason to me to interfere with all the law-abiding citizens. And that's ultimately what this comes down to. They don't have a right to come for our guns as long as we're law-abiding citizens. We, we slide over into the realm of criminality. Then things change. Now, then they tell us that they need the tools. They need the proper tools in order to make sure uh, who are the law-abiding citizens utilizing crypto and who aren't. But the big thing here is they want to tax our crypto. They want the dollars, and they want to shut it down eventually. They want to force everybody to a digital dollar. Now, there's already a U.S. dollar coin which is why they have to come up with a different name for what they want to push forward. And they will eventually do that because it's a lot cheaper than printing physical dollar bills. But we still end up with this very, very bad economic philosophy of just printing more money whenever you feel like you need to, devaluing those dollars. Well, imagine once it becomes so easy that they just get to push a button, that they no longer have the expense associated with actually physically printing. How many more dollars are going to be available? How much less is it going to be of value? I mean, there is no recipe involving the U.S. federal government and cryptocurrency policy that ends up well for crypto users. It's just not there. Any real opportunity that currently exists, it's going to be just taken away. Now, I am one of those people that will tell you that taxation is theft. I am one of those people that will tell you that the federal government will come and they will take what they want. And if they've made a mistake, it's going to take you years to get them to admit that the mistake was made, and you are never going to get a satisfactory correction. 
In fact, in some cases, even when they lose in court, they never even make an effort, never even so much as an apology. But it doesn't matter at that point. We have chronicled on this show in the past stories of individuals who were targeted by the IRS incorrectly. People who lost everything, lost businesses, lost homes, had their families break up because of the financial hardships, lost literally everything they had in their life that was worth anything. And then once they finally came out the other end and got the admission, well, there was no effort at a refund. And many of the things that had been lost couldn't be refunded anyway. We have a government that's already bloated, that's already too large, that already has too much of a stranglehold on our current currency, despite the fact that they have farmed out the control of our currency. The federal government is in control of our taxation, but the Federal Reserve is not technically part of the federal government. It's private banks. It's about it's a consortium of about uh, eight different banks, the big banks, the ones that were all too big to fail, those guys. You think it's going to hurt their feelings when uh, eventually a Democratic-led administration says, hey, look, we, we just need to, to do away with all these little banks. We just need to have one bank. It'll be the Federal Reserve. Because those other big banks like Bank of America and Wells Fargo and those other big names that you know right off the bat – they're going to sound like, oh, no, so bad, that's terrible, and, and that's going to be it. That's going to be all the fight they put up, and you know why? Because they are the Federal Reserve. They just get to drop the pretext of being different organizations. That's all. And speaking of that's all, that's going to have to be it for this first hour. So if you're listening via terrestrial radio, uh, come back again tomorrow. Uh, hopefully you'll get to hear the second hour then. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast stay right where you're at after this very brief reset of the hour uh hour number two comes up right after and so if i am saying goodbye to you right now remember don't take my word for it definitely definitely don't take their word for it be prepared to put in some effort and most importantly use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth meanwhile this is Tim Tapp. Let's go, Brandon. Hey. Let's go, Brandon. Hey. Let's go, let's go. Hey. state clan taught to praise the little man told that union saved the working class he was raised a red state son to love the flag and own a gun warned about the greed within the mass they met beneath the moonlit sky a college party drunk and high and when they had degrees they said their vows he he couldn't say when, he couldn't say how, he couldn't say why, she was different in his eyes. They built careers and had a kid, tried to live like their parents did, but both their parties taxed them close to death. 
Learn to hate the public schools. Watch TV making fools. While trial lawyers looted what was left. She, she couldn't say when. She couldn't say how. She couldn't say why. He was different in her eyes. Saw them years ago. A happy little cabin in the West. They homeschooled on their farm. Making so much more from so much less. I'm Ron Edwards, host of the Edwards Notebook. And you're listening to Tim Tap and Tap into the Truth. Broadcast of Tap into the Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, with all the usual caveats, of course. With you as always, I am indeed your ever so humble and, you know, mostly peaceful host, Tim Tap, and I'm coming to you from 
beautiful, lovely, historic Roan County, Tennessee. Now, every now and then I go back and I'll remind everybody what the caveats are. Uh, sometimes I'll remind everybody what makes uh, Roan County so historic. And uh, so today it's Roan County's turn again to uh, get a reminder for those of you out there who have no idea where I'm talking about uh, what makes it such a cool place. Uh, among other things, one of the historic parts of this county is the fact that we have the unique distinction of having been the state capital of Tennessee for one day. Now, it's almost silly the way it came about, but uh, it's still a factual piece of information, something that not any other county within the state of Tennessee can claim. Uh, once upon a time, the capital was in Knoxville, that was established back when the state was still the state of Franklin, uh, before it uh, extended further west and became the state it is today. And then once uh, the state grew, the decision was made to move the capital to Nashville. And so uh, they got kind of a late start while they were in session in the middle of the move. So they were in Knoxville one night. Uh, they got started late after they ended uh, business. So they ended up stopping in Roan County. And because they were in session, they had to, at the very least, under the state constitution at the time, a gavel into session and vote themselves closed in order to meet their requirements, uh, to count as a day in session. So they... Uh, very politely uh, requested the use of the Roan County Courthouse, which is located in lovely Kingston, Tennessee. And uh, they went into the courthouse. They gaveled into session. Uh, somebody immediately made a motion to uh, close the session for the day so that they could continue their move. It was seconded. It was voted on. Uh, the motion carried. Uh, they gaveled themselves out of session. And then they hit the road again. But... It's still one of those little, uh, maybe a winning moment on Jeopardy at some point in time, but it's uh, fantastic. So that's just one of the many things that makes Roan County historic. Capital of the state for a day. All right, anyway, uh, I don't know if anybody else finds that as much as a fun fact as I do, but, uh, you know, you can let me know. This is indeed the second hour of a two-hour broadcast that took place on February 8th of 2022. We're just a smidge past 8 p.m. Eastern uh, as I'm bringing you this live. I let the folks know that in case you're listening to terrestrial radio, uh, the show is rebroadcast on various stations across the country. Now, I keep talking about KYAH, uh, 540 AM, Utah's Talk Authority, because they are the flagship uh, when it comes to the Tap into the Truth broadcast family, as far as terrestrial radio is concerned. I mention them a lot, and uh, currently I'm also trying to direct you to the online platform, The Last Frequency. So by all means, please uh, go check that out. If you're listening, if you're hearing this show there, then obviously you're already there. But if you're listening to terrestrial radio and you're like, okay, well, where else can I find the show? Well, there's there, of course, and obviously lots of folks listen to the podcast. Uh, as soon as this is set up, it's sent out, 
And you can find it just about anywhere. Uh, places like iHeartRadio and Spotify and uh, dozens of other places, uh, Podchasers and you know, I just there's so many of them. I sit here and try to think of them, and I I lose track. Obviously, uh, Google Podcast and Apple uh, Podcast and iTunes as well. Uh, iTunes has had some major play lately, but I have to give the hats off to the folks at Spotify. If you're listening over there, or maybe you're a regular listener somewhere else, and you you followed uh, my uh, request to go over to Spotify. And to follow the show there and follow Joe Rogan and then follow as many other conservative uh, podcasts as you can find there uh, as a means of sending a message to the fine folks of Spotify. Now, at the moment, uh, we have found some new information about the 100-plus episodes that Spotify had removed from the Joe Rogan Experience archives. It evidently, according to both Spotify and Joe Rogan, was done at Joe Rogan's request. Evidently, he went back through there and decided that several of them uh, probably uh, wouldn't stand the, you know, the woke test today, even though perfectly acceptable at the time. I think when it comes to Joe Rogan, just like when it comes to any other uh, podcaster, any other media figure whatsoever, uh, it's important to have context, to understand the context. It's important to understand the intent as well. Now, I've often made uh, the, the discussion, the distinction, what's the difference between fine art and pornography? Uh, sometimes what you find in both is pretty much identical. Uh, so the difference between art and pornography sometimes simply comes down to a difference in uh, not so much content as much as intent. What did you intend to purvey with this image? And in lots of occasions, I think it's kind of the same deal here. You can find multiple folks with the exact same content, but what is the intent? And in Joe Rogan's case, I, I did not find an instance where his inward usage actually constitutes legitimate uh, racist activity. Doesn't matter anymore. Nobody cares. Uh, the left just wants to cancel him. Uh, Spotify has come out and said, well, we're still going to stand by them. Of course they are. And they're going to try to ride out the storm because it will cost them a lot of money to break their contract with him. And, and if he does, Rumble made a $100 million offer for a four-year contract to, to become the exclusive host of the Joe Rogan experience. Uh, Joe really does need to uh, make a decision soon and to stop trying to be so apologetic because uh, that is eventually going to damage him in the eyes of the people that would support him at the moment. Because every apology you make comes across as sounding like an admission of guilt. Oh, I did something terrible. Let me atone. But the thing is, Joe Rogan thinks he's dealing with reasonable, rational people who've just suddenly been hurt in some fashion. He doesn't understand that the people that are actually attacking him, they're not people that were ever fans of the show. And they're certainly not reasonable people. This is something new for him. The same thing that happened with The Rock. The same thing uh, that 
as happening with just about every other person who stepped up and have made a statement of support for Joe Rogan publicly. If you haven't been through the wars where the trolls come out and where they try to cancel you and they try to get under your skin, if you haven't ever fought that fight, it can be very uh, disconcerting at first. Uh, it takes a little time to really come to a full understanding of the fact that these folks that are coming after you, they're not reasonable people that are just simply trying to get a more equitable uh, podcast from you. It doesn't matter how you try to address their grievances because it's never, ever going to be enough. And I know I've been harping on this quite a bit, but yeah, it's just it's so hard not to continue to talk about this story. Joe Rogan is a, he's big enough to not be canceled. He's a lot like David Chappelle. The difference is Dave Chappelle's like, hmm, F it. You don't bother. I'm not changing who I am. I'll listen to anybody. You want to have a conversation? We can get together. Uh, we'll work it out. I will not be summoned. And I'm not going to change the things I have to say. And the most ridiculous aspect of the whole Dave Chappelle thing, and we talked about this a little bit, that most recent Netflix special. Ultimately, I think what most of the folks really took exception to wasn't the things he said directly about LGBTQ folks as much as it was him telling the story of the transgendered friend that he had and how he's been there to take up for and try to protect the daughter of his transgendered friend who killed themselves as a result of, well, he doesn't assert that that was it, but it certainly didn't help. That's the way he put it. And just in case you haven't seen it, his friend committed suicide. And the most traumatic thing that he's aware of was the backlash on Twitter when they came after him when his transgender friend spoke up in defense of David Chappelle. So, you know, it, it is that common thing. It doesn't matter what the uh, context, what the content is. It matters what the intent is. And Joe Rogan continues to be the antithesis of what the political left in this country, or even worldwide for that matter, what they want, what they can stand. I say at the end of almost every hour, to, to not take my word for it, to do your own homework. The left doesn't want you doing your own homework. We have been hearing the, the fine, fine folks over at uh, CNN with some of the most ridiculously and most wrongly named shows like, you know, Reliable Sources. Yeah, I'm looking at you, uh, little marshmallow guy. Reliable Sources. I mean, the only thing that you can reliably count on from CNN under the Zucker era was the fact that uh, a lot of uh, sexual misbehavior was going on. Uh, yeah, Mr. Tubin, I'm definitely not looking at you, but uh, a lot of people, unfortunately, saw more than they bargained for. How long did you have to pay your pittance before you were back on air? Yeah, I mean, folks are still referring to it as uh, uh, pulling a Tubin. And there's a reason for that. But again, the, the whole 
the whole ridiculous aspect of these people who have uh, departments dedicated to verifying medical facts. Well, are you verifying medical facts or are you just echoing what the people in charge have told you to say? Because it seems to me like there's not a single thing, not a single thing that the left and the experts on CNN were saying to the general public about COVID-19 that they got right. Not one thing. Things that they're having to admit now that they didn't get right. But they're not admitting that they didn't get it right. They're trying to say, well, the, the data has shifted. We're still following the science, but the data has shifted. So now, about time for the State of the Union address, Mr. Barely There Beijing Biden is going to get to come out and say, I have ended the pandemic because the Omicron variant now is taking a nosedive. We seem to be well past that at the, at the moment. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. But, yeah, I mean, Joe is still trying to make things right because Joe is still mistakenly believing that these people legitimately just, they're they're just bothered by him. When, in truth, what they're bothered by is the fact that he will platform people and he will have honest and open conversations with just about anybody, and he tries to learn. He walks into a lot of these conversations not knowing anything uh, about a topic, but prepared to ask the questions that he thinks the average person would want to hear. And he does really good at it. That's been the whole key to the success of the show. That's why he's the king of podcasts. I mean, I have struggled sometimes to, to sit and listen to an entire Joe Rogan podcast. Because some of these conversations, he gets going, and they'll talk for hours. I I don't think he has a show that's under two hours if you watch the whole thing. But nearly all of them will run between four to six hours. They literally have to uh, pause and take a break for, for bathroom breaks or even sometimes a meal break. But again, that's part of what makes the podcast so good. He lets the people talk. Now, lots of times I have time constraints with guests that come on the show. Sometimes they only want to, to be here for between 8 to 10 minutes. Sometimes they only want to be on about 15. I have literally had occasions where uh, I was, we had gotten into the conversation and we ended up talking for about 25 minutes before it was over. And then once we were done talking... I got complaints because there's like, I was told it would only be 15 minutes. Now, that hasn't happened very often, and I'm not going to name names, but it has happened more than once. And it's like, okay, well, here's the thing. Uh, If they ask up front, I generally tell them I'm looking for anywhere between uh, 15 to 20 minutes. But I won't cut off the conversation. I won't cut you off in the middle of a conversation uh, if there's still some points you want to do. And I always want to give you an opportunity at the end to tell people where they can go to find your work. And that's almost exactly how I phrase it just about every time. I want them to garner and reap whatever benefit from having been on this show that they can get. 
And that way, they walk away happy, generally. And lots of times, we'll be right in the middle of something. And if at the 15-minute mark, I still have a couple of questions, I'm going to ask it without thinking because it's my understanding at this point, just about everybody should know coming on uh, what the format here is. So if you're looking for less than, uh, if you're looking for 15 minutes or less, then you can say so up front and I'll do everything in my power to try to hit that mark, which means sometimes just not asking some of the questions. But regardless of all that, to be able to sit there and let your guests just talk. Let them say everything that they want to say about that topic. And then once they're done there, ask the next question and let them go from there. And again, let them speak. That is extremely unusual in the media today. And it's fantastic that somebody's doing that. And even better that somebody can, can get so many more listens by doing that. I mean, I don't follow a strict four-radio uh, format. I could if, if I needed to, but I would also feel shortchanged because then your segments, when it comes to talk radio, your segments get broke down somewhere between eight to ten minutes between breaks. Uh, and to me, I feel like every time you take one of those breaks and come back, you should be moving into a completely different segment. And if you're moving into a different segment and you've only had eight minutes to talk, now some people can say a heck of a lot of stuff in that time. But I have this bad habit, which most of you guys know by now, uh, but once I get going on uh, a tangent, I just keep going. It's not very good, like the fact that I've gotten off onto this tangent right now. This wasn't what I was going to talk about. Anyway, before we get to the halfway point of the hour which we're coming up on pretty quickly, did want to talk a little bit about this. An Ivy League spokesperson has confirmed this week, back on Monday of this week, technically, that the transgender swimmer, Leah Thomas, will be eligible to compete in the upcoming Ivy League Women's Swimming and Diving Championships. Now, Swimming World Magazine stated that a spokesperson confirmed the eligibility in an email sent on Monday to the outlet regarding Thomas, a biological male who identifies as transgendered and previously swam on the men's team. Quoting here, the recent rule changes do not impact Leah's eligibility for this month's Ivy League Women's Swimming and Diving Championships as the effective date for this unprecedented mid-season NCAA policy change begins with the 2022 NCAA Winter Championships. The championship is scheduled for February 16th through the 19th at Harvard University. Uh, a new NCAA transgender athlete policy defers to nat national governing bodies for sports eligibility. So according to the report, if the NCAA were to immediately follow a strict version of USA Swimming new rules, then no transgender athlete would be allowed to compete in the women's category prior to showing that their concentration of testosterone in serum had been less than 5 nanometers per liter uh, for a continuous period of 36 months. Thomas did not begin transitioning until late spring of 2019. So, 
that may make her ineligible for the NCAAs. The reason for Thomas being allowed to remain eligible for the Ivy League championship, well, uh, they didn't exactly reveal why that is. However, a recent change likely led to any other changes being made at a later date. So what what this really comes down to is the fine folks at Penn, they want to be uber-woke. They want to be so very inclusive. You see, last week, 16 members of the university's women's swim team sent a letter to the University of Pennsylvania and to the Ivy League asking them to reframe from suing the NCAA over its new athlete inclusion policies that would bar Leah Thomas from participating in the NCAA championships in March. They stated in this letter, quote, We have been told that if we spoke out against her inclusion in the women's competitions, that we would be removed from the team or that we would never get a job offer. Now, does that seem reasonable? These like 16 members of the team. That's a significant percentage of the group. 16 members of the team understand that even though it practically guarantees victories for the team, they understand it's just not right. Now, you can make whatever statements you want to about how it's not right to to force transgender athletes out of competition. But that's not what would be happening here. Leah, in this case, spent a lot of time swimming in the men's side of the sport. Just didn't do very well. Now, I'm not trying to insinuate that the primary change for, or the primary reason for wanting to transition, for claiming to be transgender, is because they wanted to win, wanted to be looked at like, oh, I, I'm so much better than all the other copies. I'm not saying that that's the case. However, there's no doubt that uh, Leah has a tremendous advantage in the sport, as seen by every time that he, wants to be she, has gotten into the water during competition, only having lost uh, on one occasion to a uh, transgender uh, female, wants to be male, but isn't far enough into the transition to uh, have to compete as a male. Strangely enough, she wants to be a he, but she still wants to swim as a she. Obviously, she wants to win, too. But that's the only time that he's lost. And it's pretty obvious from watching the footage that Leah wasn't giving his, wants to be hers, best effort. Lost on purpose. In fact, there are, again, anonymous members of the, the swim team that Leah is a part of that said that uh, the two of them were talking together beforehand. That they have no doubt that they colluded and planned this as a way of trying to uh, prop up transgender power in the swimming. So I guess the real question is, 
why do these girls feel threatened for expressing their their desire to compete on a, an even playing field? Why do these girls feel threatened? Obviously, someone in the athletics department has made a concerted effort to force them into feeling threatened. Don't you dare come out publicly. And unfortunately for these girls, one of them is going to have to come out publicly. They're going to have to, to stop being afraid. Now, here's a few things that will be true. You may get booted off the swim team. You may pay a price for stepping up and expressing yourself. But when you're doing it in the name of what's right, you will land on your feet. You will be fine in the end. It may take a minute, but as far as job offers are concerned, there are plenty of organizations out there now that would be willing to hire you just because you were the one who had the nerve to go public. You were the one who had the nerve to come out from anonymity and say, look, I'm not going to throw any of the other teammates under the bus, but here's what a lot of us were thinking. It's not right and it's not fair. And we, we don't have a problem with Leah wanting to transition to female. And that's been a part of all these statements and been a part of these letters on multiple occasions. They seem to be very supportive of Leah's decision to transition. But at the end of the day, these ladies are still athletes. And they want to win, first and foremost. But they also wanted to compete. And if there's not any real competition, if you're just going to get blown out of the water, figuratively and literally in the case of swimming, because a dude is getting to, uh, to behave as if they are not a dude, well, then that belittles all of the victories that they've gotten as a team, and it belittles them as individuals too. It just does. If transgenders truly want to continue to compete, then eventually we're going to have to just create a transgendered league. And we're going to have to create this both separate for the men transitioning into being women and for women transitioning into being men because, again, they're not going to be on an equal playing field. At this point, even after years of the therapies that are put in place for transitioning, hormone suppressions and hormone boosters of the opposite uh, gender, there is still an advantage just on the basic physical build for someone born as a male for a majority of their life. Just the way men are built in a majority of sports gives them an advantage, even if they have had every ounce of testosterone removed from their body and have 200% of the amount of estrogen that they should have, their build alone still gives them a very sufficient advantage athletically. It's just the truth. Not popular, but it's the truth. Let's take that mid-hour break real quick, and we'll come back on the other side. You guys don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. 
Our Constitution is a document in which we the people tell the government what it is allowed to do. We the people are free. Just a song before I go To whom it may concern It's easy to get burned When it comes to American history, it must be taught to students in a truthful manner. It should also be about the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, brought to you by Constitutional Grounds Coffee. Republicans are constantly portrayed as racists. President Trump was labeled racist for simply wanting to protect our borders. But consider the fact that it was the Democrats who murdered President Lincoln for freeing slaves. It was the Democrat who murdered President Kennedy. A Democrat murdered Martin Luther King Jr. Militant Democrats known as the KKK lynched many black Americans. Democrats enforced segregation unless they were raping black females. Mm. Democrats created the Jim Crow and poll taxes. Democrats created internment camps. Democrats created the Confederacy and destroyed good government schools catering to black Americans. And yet, conservative Christians and Republicans are called the racist. Hmm. I'm Ron Edwards. For Constitutional Grounds Coffee, simply go to BlueRidgeCoffeeCrafters.com. Ron Edwards, the new voice of America. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. You're listening to Tap Into the Truth. My name's Joe Biden. No man has a right to raise a hand to a woman. And so we have to just change the culture and keep punching at it and punching at it and punching at it. I'm cuckoo, I'm cuckoo. <laughs> just when I came to the United States Senate 120 years ago. I promise you, the president has a big stick. I mean, he has made clear that, uh, 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 my name's Joe Biden. I keep forgetting I'm president. I keep forgetting I'm president. Is not this simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. so very much for staying with me through that very brief break. You may have noticed recently that I've only been playing 
the songs and stories for soldiers, veterans, tip of the day in the first hour of the broadcast. Uh, that's because I haven't gotten a new one. I, Dan Perkins has been sending me links to uh, his recent commentaries and things he's been uh, doing and writing, but I haven't gotten any new songs and stories for soldiers, veterans, tip of the day. I'll continue to reach out to him. I would very much like to continue airing them. I'm going to continue airing the ones I have, but until I get something a little newer, a little more contemporary, I guess, I'm going to just kind of stop where I'm at and just do the one in the first hour. I hope that's okay with everyone. Don't know that... uh, don't know that that should be an issue. But regardless of all that, uh, let me take this opportunity to uh, remind each and every one of you that if you're someone like me who has a serious sweet tooth, but you need to find a way to, to try to help, you know, start cutting back on some of the calories that you're taking in, you're looking for a healthy alternative that will satisfy your sweet tooth and yet still be good for you. Well, then there's really only one place that you can look to accomplish that goal. And I'm talking about Built Bar. By now, you know what I'm talking about. You've heard me uh, to tell you all these great flavors they have. So I'm going to skip to the uh, the hard sell here, as, as hard as the sell gets. You're going to see a link in the show description. Go down to that link, uh, copy it, paste it over in your web browser, and go visit them. And using that link, I know it's a big ask. But using that link lets them know that I'm the one that sent you. So if you go ahead and make a purchase while you're there, I get credit for that, for having sent them there, a great paying customer that you are. And and even if you don't make a purchase, by visiting and following that link, uh, they still know that I'm sending a lot of traffic their way. So it still works out as a positive as they will find some value, some merit to being associated with this program might even eventually lead to an actual sponsorship at some point. So, you know, that's not your problem, I understand. But it still would be great if you guys would just take a minute or two to help me out with that. And if you're not listening to the podcast, or if you're just really, really busy right now and want to come back and uh, do something about it later, and you can't find that link anymore for some reason then do me the small favor of visiting me on tapintothetruth.com. Uh, that's T-A-P-P, into the truth, all one word, dot com. Uh, you'll be able to scroll down on the home page. That's as far as you'll have to go. Just kind of scroll down. You'll see banners. If you click on the banner, it'll work just the same. And they'll still know that I'm the one that sent you. So, you know, just it's a, it's a small ask. You can really help me out with that. All right, let's get back to the show. I wanted to spend a, a little extra time on this story. Uh, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Brandon Tatum, but he's a former police officer and he's a political commentator. Just so happens to be black. Uh, he decided to come out and, and have a response to the apology video from popular podcast host Joe Rogan. Uh, you know, Joe Rogan, of course, came out this week. And, uh, you know, Brandon wanted to talk about uh, his use of the N-word in past episodes. Now, notably, 
Rogan said in the video that when you look at past clips of his use of the word in context, he was either quoting others or speaking about the word generally, never using it in a racist fashion. And, and that's true. Still, Rogan said in the video that he regrets using the word and hoped it would be a learning moment for others. Now, Tatum, his general take was that Rogan should not have apologized because the host's intent was never malice and that smart people understand that context matters. He also noted that those attacking him will never be satisfied with an apology and merely want him canceled. So the former police officer also offered some thoughts over Rogan's comments about how black people can use the word in an even complimentary way. Quote, I just don't like using the word because I think it's a disgusting word. Tatum then added, discussing the word in context doesn't bother him. Those offended by a white person even quoting someone else in a non-racist fashion are often black people who use the word themselves and claim that they've taken the word back. The myth of the N-word is that black people have taken that word back, taking the power from it. He then very adamantly says, no, they haven't. Continuing the quote, Black people have not taken the word back. They ain't taken no power from nothing. If it was powerless, then nobody would be complaining when people say it. Because they have the power now, they still cry a river. If black people are still getting mad, if you quote another black man saying it, it's not powerless. You can't even quote a black man saying it to denounce it. Y'all ain't got the power back. So now, after watching more of Rogan's video, Tatum then questions where the podcast host messed up, saying, if you had no ill intention when you said the word, they can kiss your, well, you know what. Everybody knows you're not racist. You've got people of all races and demographics that watch your show. I watch your show all the time. Nobody in their right mind thinks Joe Rogan is racist. Rogan, of course, posted a video to social media earlier Saturday morning. We've already talked about that one on Sunday's show, addressing the controversy. At the start of the post... Rogan said that he had seen a video compilation of him using the word, which he said was out of context, adding this was one of the, quote, most regretful and shameful things I've ever had to talk about. I never used it to be racist because I'm not racist. But whenever you're in a situation where you have to say, I'm not racist, you effed up. And clearly, I've effed up. Hopefully, some of you will accept this and understand where I'm coming from. Rogan finished off the video by saying, My apologies and much love, my sincere 
deepest apologies. So, again, what's he apologizing for? Oh, somebody might have had a hurt feeling. Really? That that demands this much attention? I mean, we've already covered on multiple occasions. And I know you've heard it from other hosts on multiple platforms, too. Because if you listen to this show, I can probably guess the kind of other shows you're listening to. I would imagine you probably lean towards listening to at least one of the hosts over at The Blaze and probably at least one of the hosts over at Daily Wire and then probably uh, multiple folks like Ann Ubellis from Southern Sense Talk Radio and Don Smith of The Don Smith Show. you got to go over to Locals to find him now. And, of course, the Ron Edwards American Experience that six days a week. You're probably listening to folks like that along with countless other posts like uh, Ideas Are Bulletproof, uh, the, the Ideas Are Bulletproof Network. If you're listening to people that are making sense, you have definitely by now heard all of them discussing this topic. You've probably heard the same points over and over again to the point that you're tired of hearing about it. So why is it a big deal that Brandon Tatum comes out and talks about the myth of the N-word? Because he's saying out loud, as a black man in America, that obviously this word is still hurtful. You haven't taken the power back. But again, the word has become a cudgel. It's not about hurting anybody's feelings anymore. I'm sorry, you can't listen to rap music. And I'm not saying that everybody does. In fact, I know for a fact that I listen to more rap music than uh, some of some of my black friends. They're like, why are you listening to that crap, man? Only they typically don't say crap. I said, why are you listening to that crap for? And again, I, I've always kind of taken it as an insult to the fact that I'm listening to older stuff because I have a hard time listening to anything relatively new these days. I have become that guy I always said I wouldn't be. So, yeah, I'm going to keep listening to, to the pop stuff. Uh, whatever's new and fresh, I'm going to stay. I'm not going to become that guy who says, wow, the music I listened to growing up was awesome and the music you guys are listening to now, eh, it's not even music. But, you know, I find myself doing exactly that now. So... That having been said, not everybody listens to rap, but for those that do, especially gangster rap, there's a lot of very negative things that if a white guy said any of it, they'd be instantly canceled. Say, like, go ahead, try to be a gangster rapper as a white guy. Doesn't work out too well. You know, you can still have a bit of a career. You can be, you can be hard, but you can't be gangster, if you know what I mean. If you don't care what I mean, then okay, fair enough. If you don't listen, that's fine. But you can't keep using it in movies. You can't keep using it in a rant that you're going to go down. You can't keep using the word and acting like it's a problem when somebody else uses it. So he makes these points. Now, I have often lamented for the longest time, especially if you go back into the archives, I used to make an effort to try and find stories, especially culture war stories, that needed to be touched on that were not being reported by a whole lot of people. There weren't a lot of folks talking about it. 
Sometimes I even had breaking news. In fact, a couple of times I was literally months ahead of the rest of the media catching up on some of the stories. I'm kind of proud of that fact because I don't consider myself to be a journalist, but that feels very journalistic. It's like, hey, breaking news right here. I'll wait a couple of months for you guys to catch up. Only if you listened to here then, you didn't have to wait. But then when it came up with the other folks, they were like, oh, yeah, I, I heard that somewhere before. Where did I hear that from? <laughs> Probably didn't remember where, but you knew you had heard it somewhere before. And, hey, you know, I'll just pat myself on the back quietly. I'll try not to hurt myself uh, patting myself so hard. But, you know, somebody's got to, right? Uh, ain't nobody going to pat me on the back for me. <laughs> anyway, the, the point still comes back to this very simple and basic notion. If the word didn't have power, it wouldn't matter who was saying it. And if you think it's okay for you to use it, but not okay for somebody else to use it, then it's probably not okay for you to use it either. Oh, but you see, we, we use it as a sign of affection. Really? Well, then why can't I use it as a sign of affection? <laughs> why can't I say, uh, my home... And, you know, inward. Why can't I do that and uh, it be okay? I mean, I do have friends of color. And not just Ron Edwards. So for some of you smart Alex that I know is just about to pounce on that. Yeah, Ron Edwards, who's, he's not one of them. What are you talking about? Ron Edwards is a black man in America. Only he's proud of America. Nothing wrong with that, by the way, even though some folks will try to convince you otherwise. What makes this worth talking about in this occasion, why does it matter that uh, Brandon Tatum comes out and says this? Because he, too, is a black man in America, and he, too, can see how utterly ridiculous the whole thing is. Like I was saying before, the difference between fine art and pornography comes down to not content, but intent. And the same thing applies here to Joe Rogan's worst use of the N-word. It's not the content that's at issue, it's the intent. And the intent should matter. The circumstances in which you are utilizing the word should matter. The context of its use should matter. People should not lose their job because they stand up and tell you, okay, well, here is how you should deal with using this word, and they actually use the word. That shouldn't be an issue, but it is. The, the foundation of the word in the first place has nothing to do with race but behavior. A lot of white N-words out there still today. Doesn't matter. I can't say it. I don't particularly care to say it. I, I do tend to think that it's just a harsh and unkind word. I typically don't use a whole lot of curse words on this program. Every now and then one might slip out. And usually then it's kind of the, the B-list you know, it's not those uh, really bad ones that I would have to bleep out to get on uh, the radio. And it's not because I'm afraid to say them. It's because 
I don't want to draw anyone else into controversy. I would use the same language you hear me use already uh, under normal circumstances anyway. Uh, it comes down to a personal preference, though. I don't have fear of the N-word. I don't have fear of the backlash that would come directed at me from the N-word. I just don't like using the N-word. I just don't. And it's not because some snowflake might have a meltdown. It just feels like a negative, disrespectful term. Which is why I would prefer it disappear from the vernacular of black Americans, too. I don't care how you think you're using it. It's very disrespectful. It's very hurtful. And it's creating a negative uh, point in your individual culture. Black culture in America. Well, you know, okay, that's real. It's something that exists. Why does the N-word have to be part of it? If it still hurts so many people's feelings, y'all just need to drop it. Everybody just needs to drop it. I mean, I heard somebody, I forget who it was now, uh, but I heard somebody just the other day trying to make the point, oh, why isn't Leonardo DiCaprio canceled? I mean, if it doesn't matter what the context is in which its usage is, just a white guy using it at all is a counselable effect. Why is Leonardo DiCaprio not canceled? I mean, you guys saw Django Unchained, right? Uh, how many times in a gratuitous fashion did Leonardo drop the N-bomb just over and 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 then, you know, over one more time again? How many times? I just just for shock effect. Yeah, I, I find it quite surprising how many uh, more recent movies that uh, has featured the N word, and yet the actors portraying them, eh, no big problem, no big whoop. Oh, they're just they're just acting. Okay, but you said context doesn't matter. So now you're telling me context does matter? Then I need to see the rules, guys. I There needs to be some consistency. Under what context is it okay and what context is it? If I put on uh, a two-hour radio play where I was dropping the N-word left and right, would that be all right for a, an episode of this show? It's like I've been working on a play. Trying to get it turned into a movie. We're going to go over two hours here and just did a whole production as a, an audio play. Would that make it okay? Because if it doesn't, then Leonardo's got to go, right? What? No? No, what? What's the difference? Some, somebody explain it to him. Well, Leonardo's one of us. But is he? Is he really? Because he's a white guy. If you believe in racial essentialism... Uh, he's an oppressor. Doesn't matter how much of an ally he wants to be. He's an oppressor. He can't help himself. He's white. That's how absurd this whole conversation is. And you know what's going to happen? Probably already happening uh, since this announcement came out. Brandon Tatum 
is going to now take some heat. They're going to try to come after him. And they're going to say things like he's just not black enough. They're going to say he doesn't understand uh, what it's like to live a black, an authentic black experience in America. And I'll, I'll push back. I'll stand up for Brandon. This is a Brandon that I mean it when I say, let's go, Brandon. Uh, and not the same context as the other, let's go, Brandon. I'll stand up. I'll back him. I'm telling you right now. He's 100% correct. He is absolutely right. There's no question. There's no doubt. Intent matters more than content when it comes to the distinction and whether or not something is aesthetically pleasing or is just raunchy. Sometimes that's the only difference. What was the intent here? How was it framed differently? Joe Biden, he wants to come after your crypto. He's still trying to figure out what flavor of ice cream he wants. The general public, they just don't want to be bothered, and clearly they've decided they're not going to watch the Olympics. The numbers there are terrible. The political left, they want to cancel Joe Rogan. And as long as it looks like there's any wiggle room at all, they're going to keep coming. I do hope that Spotify surprises me and stands up. I mean, it looks, they, they keep wavering back and forth. It looks like they might, and maybe they won't. I don't know. But regardless of all that, this second hour is winding down to an end, so we're going to have to kind of just let things be where they're at. So a quick reminder, if you missed the first hour, please uh, come find the podcast somewhere and listen to my conversation with Tracy Fenton. Uh, otherwise, guys, don't take my word for it. Definitely, definitely don't take their word for it. Be prepared to put in some effort, and most importantly, use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. Meanwhile, stay safe out there if you can. Crime still on the rise. Stay healthy if at all possible, and, uh, you know, be smart, even if it goes against your nature. I'm out.
control is using both hands. Founders knew the Second Amendment was the final one to keep. To hold our other rights intact so we'd never become sheep. Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Amin, and Pol Pot. They told us things that you never forgot. Lessons to your daughters and sons To fear the government that fears your guns Now the new world order crew Well, they're making their demands They don't feel safe if you are armed You say gun control Is using both hands using both hands.